much for being with us today. I'm going to say a prayer to get us started. Dear Heavenly Father, we love you so much. We are thankful that you are a God who sees us, knows us, loves us, and sets us free. I pray that your word would fill our heart today. I pray that we would see the goodness, the wonder of Jesus Christ in the kind of way that strengthens our hearts and encourages our souls. We love you and trust you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Have you ever wondered why we're just so good at judging one another? It's one of those things that without even trying, it comes naturally to us. We have magazines that talk about celebrities and what they're wearing and what they're doing, all kinds of social media platforms and shows that discuss everybody and everything you can think of. We're quick to laugh at one another, judge one another, and we're really good at thinking the best about ourselves and the worst about other people. And it's honestly been a criticism of religious people for as long as we can remember. Why are they so hypocritical, so judgmental, so critical? And I read an article this week that was really interesting, and it talked about why we always judge one another. It began with a quote from Carl Jung that said, thinking is difficult, which is why most people judge. It went on to talk about, you know, judging is easy, and it really doesn't require much thinking or reasoning. Our brains are wired to make automatic judgments about others' behavior so we can move through the world without spending much time or energy in understanding everything we see. It said that understanding is harder as it requires deep thinking, patience, compassion, and an open mind. Our attempts to create a hierarchy or better than and less than, superior to, inferior to, to define worth to everyone and everything we meet. That's why we judge one another. We have the innate urge to be right, to be better, to be superior in all things. And Carl Jung said, although our conscious minds are avoiding our own flaws, they still want to deal with them on a deeper level, so we magnify those flaws in other people. We can only see in others what we have inside ourselves. We're good at exaggerating the faults of other people and minimizing the gravity of our own. We are terrible at being impartial or objective, especially when we're trying to compare ourselves to each other. We are good at seeing problems in other people and the best inside ourselves. We're good at seeing problems out there, all the while ignoring what's going on in us. And in fact, 2,000 years ago, Jesus, in probably one of his most famous teachings, the Sermon on the Mount, he talks about this idea just so incredibly directly. Listen to what he says. It's in Matthew chapter, chapter 7, right at the beginning. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye, then you'll see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. This is one of the places I really love the message translation. Listen to how the message says it. Don't pick on people, jump on failures, criticize their faults, unless, of course, you want the same treatment. That critical spirit has a way of boomeranging. It's easy to see a smudge on your neighbor's face and be oblivious to the ugly sneer on your own. Do you have the nerve to say, let me wash your face for you when your own face is distorted by contempt? It's this traveling roadshow mentality all over again, playing a holier-than-thou part instead of just living your part. 
Wipe that ugly sneer off your own face and you might be fit to offer a washcloth to your neighbor. Now, I love this because Jesus is so good. Like, he goes right to the heart of the issue. Why are we so quick to pick on people? Why are we so quick to be critical of other people's faults and jump all over them? We see the smallest speck in somebody else. Meanwhile, there's a tree growing out of our face, and we completely ignore it. Charles Swindoll called this the judging game. Someone finds something they don't like or agree with about a person, usually by quickly and superficially surveying the person's external qualities. Then they jump to the negative critical opinions about that person. These self-proclaimed judges never take the time to dig deeply, get the facts straight, or draw fair conclusions about a person. Instead, they slap the person with a label and then interpret all that person's words and actions through that grid. Finally, they share their inaccurate observations and conclusions openly and freely with others. That, that's the judging game, right? We've seen it, we've felt it, we've experienced it. But here's why he says it's wrong. Besides what we intuitively know, first, we never know everything about everybody else. We don't know their hearts. We don't know their motives. We don't know their intentions. We don't know into their minds and their past life experience. A second reason, he says, is in our fallen, frail, and finite condition, we are prejudiced. We never able, are able to be completely objective and see other people. And then he says we have a limited perspective. And finally, this is because he's Charles Swindoll, he's so smart. We aren't God. We aren't qualified to fill the position of judge. And yet, so frequently, we do. We all have experiences. We can turn this around on ourselves. Experiences where we've been in the position of somebody thinking wrong things about us. We know how it feels to be judged. We've been experienced in positions where we've been labeled and talked about by other people, and the things they said weren't even close to accurate or true. And we hate how it feels. We hate how it feels when other people to do, do this to us, yet so quickly we jump on doing just that to one another. But here's why Jesus brings this up. At the heart of this spirit, this mentality, this judgmental, is as long as I'm pointing the finger at somebody else, as long as I'm pointing the finger outward at someone else's fault, I never have to deal with my own problems. As long as I'm how messed up that is over there, then I don't have to say, look how messed up it is in here. We are able to deal with our own mess by looking outward, blaming outward, critical spirit outwards, instead of turning the mirror right back on ourselves. And this is exactly the place that Christ wants to meet us, not in critical spirits out there, but in the eye and the heart that needs to be turned inward right here, where Christ can help us, heal us, and make us whole. And so Christ gives this wonderful illustration. He says, it, it, you have this tree, this log that's growing out of your face, and it's huge, and it's obvious, and you're critical of this little teeny tiny speck of dust on somebody else. 
Now, he's not saying it's wrong to want to help somebody, right? If I've got dirt on my face, tell me I have dirt on my face. I want to wipe it off. It's not wrong to want to help somebody. It is wrong to miss my own problems and struggle while all the while I'm putting my attention on other people to stand in the place of judgment and blame and criticism while all the while refusing to look at my own problems and my own shortcomings. And Jesus, who knows us better than anybody else, who knows our humanity and our shortcomings, challenges us. Stop settling for that log that's growing out of your face. Stop being so comfortable with what you've just let grow there. It doesn't bring comfort. It doesn't bring healing. There's no growth. And yes, we'd rather ignore it and point the fingers at other people than do anything about it ourselves. But Jesus wants us to take the plank out, to look at it, examine it, stop ignoring its existence, and living our life pretending like it's not there. We'll never live a healthy, full, and productive life while we have this giant tree growing out of us, holding us back. Now, interestingly enough, the fourth step in the 12 steps of recovery is we made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. The first three steps, we came face to face with the idea, I can't, God can, I think I will let God. We need help. We can't move forward in our health, our recovery, our faith on our own. If we are the problem, we aren't the solution. Outside of us, beyond us, we need help that's greater than us, and we find that in a loving and good God. And what Jesus' teaching shows us is we have blind spots in our lives, blind spots that we've settled for, blind spots that we've uh, covered up for, blind spots in our thinking, in our heart, in our behavior, in our actions, and we've settled in and gotten comfortable with them. And before we're able to be healthy and helpful to anybody else, we need to take an inventory on ourselves. And I love the qualifying words here, a searching and fearless inventory. This isn't a surface level, well, I'm only going to go so deep. This is all the way through. We take an inventory not to prove how good we are or how bad we are, not to prove anything to anybody else, but to finally stop avoiding ourselves, to be self-aware of who we are, how we think, what we feel, and the choices that we make. Richard Rohr said it this way in his book, Breathing Underwater. He said, moral scrutiny isn't to discover how good or bad we are and regain some moral high ground, but to begin some honest shadow boxing. I'm sorry, I grew up in the 90s, Fiona Apple, as soon as I hear shadow box, no, I know, I'm dating myself, it's fine. This is at the heart of all spiritual awakening. The goal is not the perfect avoidance of all sin, which isn't possible anyway, but the struggle itself and the encounter and wisdom that comes from it. If we let it for a second. This is such a game changer in our faith. Life isn't this moral superiority where I somehow reach this point that I avoid all sin and never do anything bad again. In fact, listen to what he says, law and failure create the foil which creates the conflict which leads to a very different kind of victory than any of us expected. Not moral victory, not moral superiority, but luminosity of awareness and compassion for the world, which becomes our real moral victory. 
This isn't a goal in life to say, the more I know Christ, the more morally superior of a person I become. And this, for some of us, wrecks our ground level of faith. Like, I thought the goal was to be more perfect, right? What he's challenging us with, the actual moral victory is an awareness that creates compassion in us for ourselves and for one another. He said, so shadow boxing, a searching and fearless moral inventory is for the sake of truth, humility, and generosity of spirit, not vengeance on the self or some kind of total victory over the self. Seeing and naming our actual faults is probably so, not so much a gift to us, although it is, as to those around us. Our shadow self is not our evil self. It's just the part of us that we don't want to see. Our unacceptable self by reason of nature, nurture, and choice. But that bit of blindness or denial is what allows us to do evil and cruel things without recognizing them as evil or cruel. So ongoing shadow boxing is absolutely necessary because we all have a well-denied shadow self. And we'll go into that more. There's all types of research into this. There's a great book that we can read. But what it really boils down to is we have a public persona, right? The person that we show the world. This is who I am. And we have a private self that we keep hidden. And in our private self, many of us say, people can't see this part of me because if they did, they'd realize what a horrible, terrible person I am. And whether it's something that we grew up feeling about ourselves, something that happened in our life that we're trying to cover up, something that we're trying to say, I'm this instead of this to bury a past shame, we all have parts of ourselves that we don't like. We have things that annoy us or disgust us. We have thoughts, emotions, impulses that we find painful, hurtful, embarrassing, and even horrifying. And the tension becomes this duality of spirit. There's a good part of me and a bad part of me. I want the world to see the good part of me, and so I'm going to do everything I can to suppress the bad part of me. And rather than dealing with who we are, our whole self, in any healthy kind of way, we split ourselves into two different versions, the good and the bad. And we live out the good, and we over-amplify it, and we try to be that in front of other people. And then the parts that we don't like, we hide, we bury, we ignore, we push down and act like they don't exist. But here's the core of what all of this is teaching us. We can't heal what we refuse to see. We can't grow in healthy ways as long as we're saying, this part gets suppressed, only this part gets to come up. Because now we've split ourselves and we never become a whole self. The longer we hide from what we think is secret or shameful or bad or gross or disgusting, the larger it looms, the bigger it becomes. There's this idea, it's called the beach ball effect. We've all been kids at one point and had a beach ball and tried to hold it underwater, right? And you push it down and you play and it's fun, but the second you take your eye off the ball, what happens? It bounces out of the water. And the longer you've been holding it down, the bigger the splash. And the splash doesn't just splash you, it splashes everybody around us. Well, the same is true with what we call the shadow self the parts of ourselves that we don't like, that we hide and we ignore, we're holding it down like a beach ball, but the second we take our eye off of it, the second we get distracted by life, or the second the edge comes off, it blows up, and it doesn't just splash us, it splashes everybody around us. 
God didn't create us to live dual lives. <laughs> We're not this good version, bad version. We, we, we don't have to live suppressing. We miss what God wants to do in us, what God has done for us when we split our life into these dichotomies. This is exactly the place where Christ wants to meet us and help us. Please, this is, this, I, I am a grown woman who's grown up in the church, and this hit me like a ton of lead bricks this week reading this idea. The goal of faith and growing with Christ isn't becoming moral superior, right? You, you can do all of the most morally good things in the world and still have shadows that loom in your heart, in your mind, in your body, in your past. Roar said, we all have that which we cannot see, won't see, dare not see, because it would destroy our public and personal image. But the more we are attached to any persona, any image, any false self, the more the shadow self we will have. So we need conflict, relationship difficulties, moral failures, defeats to our grandiosity, even seeming enemies, or we'll have no way to ever spot or track ourselves. Maybe the very places where we have tension with ourselves, with people, we need that tension because we won't look honestly in the mirror any other way. And so Jesus challenges us, take the plank out of your eye. It doesn't belong there. It shouldn't grow there. It shouldn't be comfortable there. Pull it out. Look at it. Give it a name. Stop avoiding it. No more hiding. No more pretending. Don't use judgmental attitudes as a shield. Stop using hypocrisy and criticism and false living as the armor of perfection and moral superiority. They gain you nothing. Your heart doesn't grow there. It's not healthy there. It's not spiritual there. It's just as much a shadow self as other things we say we don't like. I love, Brene Brown wrote a book called The Atlas of the Heart, and a lot of times we struggle with language for our emotions and our feelings. And in this book, she breaks down, listen to what she says. When we don't have the language to talk about what we're experiencing, our ability to make sense of what's happening and share it with others is severely limited. If I don't have the language to express what's happening, I don't even know how to talk about it. I don't know the words to put there. She said, without accurate language, we struggle to get the help we need. We don't always regulate or manage our emotions and experiences in a way that allows us to move through them productively, and our self-awareness is diminished. Language shows us that naming experience doesn't give the experience more power. It gives us the power of understanding and meaning. So she said, let's start giving language to how we feel, what we've been through, who we are, and we can find power in understanding and meaning. This is, it's a great book if you ever want to read it, because what she calls it, instead of like the core emotion, she says, places you go when you feel this. When you feel angry, here are different places you go. When you feel happy, here are different places you go. When you feel envious, when you feel pride or humility, it's very, very interesting. But it's all about giving language to how we feel so we can find understanding and meaning and talk our way through life. So I want to give us, I want to make this applicable. It's a great idea in theory, but if we don't practice it, it doesn't have any power to help us grow in any healthy ways. So I want to give us some steps for how to really start looking at the plank growing out of us, examining it, naming it, giving language to talk about it. This is, we've heard this, your secrets keep you sick. Stop hiding. 
stop living in the secret world and let's shed some light on the darkness because God isn't the one avoiding us. We are the ones avoiding God. And if we will allow him to, he will shine his light in the darkness and call out that which is in us that is very, very best. Not pieces or parts of us, but all of us. So I'm going to give us a couple different ways to look at it. The first one is this. It involves quiet time, just you, nobody else. This isn't other people's perspectives of you. This is you doing the work to become self-aware about who you are. So go to a quiet place. Take paper, pen, if you're electronics, whatever you write down stuff on, and start with prayer. Because here's the truth. I want to be honest with myself, but I'm still all of those pieces of myself that I know to be true, and I need God's help in this. I need to say to God, please help me face this. Help me face the parts of myself that I don't like, that I'm embarrassed by, shamed by, afraid of. Help me be honest with you and myself. I don't want to hide anymore. Dear God, please help me. So we start with prayer, and then we start asking ourselves some questions. I'm going to go through these questions. They're going to pop up on the screen. They're in our notes app. So if you have the Christchurch app, all of these are listed in there. So if you want, you can download the app, use the app, and have this to do in your quiet time later. What are some questions we can ask ourselves? Start with, anger is an obvious emotion, right? We say it's a bad emotion, a negative emotion, but anger is always telling us something about ourselves. So if we start with anger, who are we angry at? Like if I ask myself the honest question, make a list. I'm angry at this person, this person, this person, this person. But then follow it up, why am I angry? I'm angry at this person for what they said. I'm angry at this person for what they did. I'm angry at this person for how they made me feel. This doesn't have to be anything else than a self-examination. Anger will teach us a lot if we question it and look at it. So on the other side of anger is how we think and feel about ourselves. So ask yourself the question, how do I see myself? How do I feel about myself? On the other side of that, how do other people see me? How do other people feel about me? Because I'm terrible at being objective. How do I see myself? And let's examine and layer it through. Okay, what do I want? <laughs> when I really boil down life, what do I want for myself, for my family, for my future, for who I am? What do I want? Here's a good one. Where am I resentful? We all have pockets of resentfulness in us, pockets of bitterness, pockets of, ugh, where am I resentful? What do I do to protect myself? We all have shields, armor, things that we hide behind to protect ourselves, and sometimes just labeling those things, when I feel this way, what do I do to protect myself? Here's a hard one. What am I afraid of? When I think about life, past, future, present, all the pieces of me, what am I afraid of? And why do I have this fear? Sometimes we have fear and it's healthy fear, right? Don't be a jerk. I don't want to be a jerk. I'm afraid of being a jerk. Sometimes we have irrational fears. I'm afraid of this happening because it happened before. And I go into protection mode because I know how that feels and I don't want to feel that way again. Here's a hard one, too. These are all hard, I know, but where am I being most selfish? 
that's a really good indicator of fear, anger, protection, right? It's a, it's a covering emotion. Where am I being most selfish? Where am I dishonest? This is, you don't have to show this work to anybody else. This, this isn't a confessional. We're not there yet. You don't have to give this to anybody. This is for you. Where are you being dishonest? And think through this in layers. With God, with myself, and with other people. Where am I lying? It, it could be omitly. It could be covert. I mean, it could be, uh, where am I being dishonest? And then when you get to the end of this, think through the people in your life. Who have I hurt? Around me, with me, family, friends, co-workers, who have I hurt? The more we are able to actually think through our actual faults, the better able we are to deal with them honestly. The better we can look at our playing, the better able we are to know ourselves, to receive help and growth and health. Listen, the goal isn't moral superiority. The goal isn't how good am I, how bad am I. The goal isn't what am I compared to you. If our race of life is me versus you, we will never get to where we're supposed to go. The race is me versus myself, <laughs> my past self, my present self, and what I want to be my future self. The goal is truth, humility, generosity. Remember what Roar said, it is not vengeance on the self. This isn't to beat yourself up into a pulp. This isn't to tear yourself down and just be one more proof of what a terrible person you are, right? That doesn't help. That just drives to more. It's not some kind of total victory over the self. It's a place of awareness and truth because that is the exact place where God can meet us and do his best work. So one place to start, quiet time, prayer, ask yourself some questions and think about who you are for that self-awareness. I'm going to give us another step. There's a book called The Shadow Effect, and it's by Debbie Ford, um, Deepak Chopra, I want to make sure I'm saying his name right, and Marianne Williams, and they actually give us some really interesting tools to put into practice. They say, if we wish to avoid the wrath of the shadow effect, remember that beach ball effect where it splashes all over us and everybody else, we have to do reality checks with ourselves every day to see if we are acting in ways that could shame, embarrass, or destroy our family, our career, our health, or self-esteem. We have to be aware of habits, behaviors, or ways of being that we are keeping from others. Listen to what a self-check this is. If we fear what would happen if our families, coworkers, or friends looked through our emails, checked the history of our most recently viewed sites on our computers or phone, or read the judgmental mean thoughts in our minds, we must recognize these as signs and a flashing red light. If it's wrong choices that lead us into problems, we need to replace them with different choices. We need new choices to give us healthy practices. So they give us four practices that we can use to look at all of this a little bit differently. The first one is this, stop projecting. This one's, I'm sorry, this one's gonna punch you in the gut because we're really, really good at this. Our shadow tells us, ignore your own weaknesses and project them on other people. And so to avoid feeling not good enough, we see other people around us as not good enough. In fact, here's the template for projection they said. I can't admit what I feel, so I'm going to imagine that you feel it instead. This is the hard part. 
our biggest clue to what we're projecting is typically what we are most critical and judgmental of in other people. The part of ourselves that we're unwilling to look at is usually the part we are most critical in of others. So here's the, some examples that said it looks like. One is superiority. We project superiority because it disguises the feeling that you're a failure or that others would reject you if they knew who you really are. Another place they said we do this is with injustice. It disguises the feeling of sinfulness or the sense that you are always to blame. Arrogance disguises bottled up anger and beneath that lies deep-seated pain. Defensiveness. Come on now, it's so hard not to be defensive, but it disguises the feeling that you are unworthy and weak. And unless you defend yourself from others, you'll start attacking yourself. Blame disguises the feeling that you're at fault and you should be ashamed of yourself. So what do you do? You blame other people, right? It projects off of you onto them. Idealizing others, they said, disguises the feeling that you're weak, a helpless child who needs protection and taking care of. Prejudice, it disguises the feeling that you are inferior and deserve to be rejected. Jealousy disguises your impulse to stray or a sense of inadequacy. Paranoia disguises your deep-seated, overwhelming anxiety. They said, here's how you recognize when you're projecting. Negativity. Projection is never neutral. It's never kind. It's always negative that we're pointing out in other people. Use this as a lens. What, have I, what am I most critical of of other people? What am I constantly projecting on other people? And as hard as it is, that becomes a mirror to look at myself and say, where am I doing that in my life right now? The second thing they say, the second step, the second choice is detach and let go. Why is it so hard to let go of negative emotions? Think about this for a second. Something happened and you felt a certain way or somebody said something to you that made you feel very, very bad. It's so hard to let go of that, isn't it? I can remember being in eighth grade, something mean somebody said to me. Do you know how long ago I was in eighth grade? It's stupid. I have no contact with this person, and I can still remember that stupid feeling I had when somebody said something to me, and I felt embarrassed. I felt bad in front of other people. It's hard to let go of these kind of feelings. We repeat them in our mind. We play them over and over again. And they said, here's two reasons they're hard to let go of. One, usually negative emotions are the tip of the iceberg. So every time you get angry or anxious, there's more of those feelings stored in the shadow. It taps into, right, we hate feeling stupid, so when somebody makes us feel stupid, it taps into that iceberg of every time we've ever been made to feel stupid. The second thing they say is that negativity is sticky. It holds on to us just as much as we hold on to it. Okay, so how do we detach and let go? We have to acknowledge the feelings, however unwanted, and bring them to the surface. This is where language is so powerful. I feel stupid. I feel ashamed. I feel hurt. I feel sad. I feel ang Whatever it is, we bring the emotion to the surface and we acknowledge it. And this is powerful. Detaching isn't indifference, right? Detaching is, I don't care. Sticks and stones may break my bones. Words will never hurt me, right? That's never worked for anybody in the history of ever. It's not indifference. Instead, what it's saying is, I really don't want negativity to stick to me. I'm going to work my way through it. It's mine, but it's not me. 
There's a difference, right? It's the difference between guilt and shame. Guilt is, I did something wrong, I feel bad. Shame is, I am wrong, I feel bad. And what that separates is, this might be my feeling, but it's not who I am. I can have a negative emotion without being that emotion. I can be angry without being an angry person, right? We can separate. And so they give us some statements to practice this. These are so powerful. Sometimes just having one or two memorized statements, Bible verses, can challenge the hardest emotions we face in the most challenging of times. Here are some of the statements they give us to practice. I can get through this. It won't last forever. I felt this way before. I can deal with it. Here's a good one. I won't feel better unloading on somebody else. Remember when we talked about complaining? I feel like if I just dump everything on somebody else, it's going to make me feel better. But unfortunately, it doesn't make me feel better, and it now drags somebody else down to my icky feelings, so now two of us feel bad. I won't feel better. No one ever wins the blame game. Acting out leads to regret and guilt. Before I lash out, whatever the emotion is I'm feeling, I can say to myself, acting out here, it's only going to make me feel guilty later. It's only going to make me feel regret. Here's a good one. I can be patient. <laughs> I can cool down. Let's see if I cool down a little while. Okay. This is so powerful because impatience gets the best of us, and we say things we shouldn't say, and we lash out in hurtful ways. I can be patient. Here's one. I'm not alone. I can call someone to help me through this bad patch. I can include people to help me without unloading everything on them so that they have to be dragged down too. I can simply say, here's how I feel. I don't want to be alone in this. Can I talk to you, right? I'm much more than my feelings. Moods come and go, even the worst moods, right? That's, I won't feel this way forever. I've been in a bad mood before. I've been in a sulky mood before. I've been in a frustrated mood before. I won't live here forever. Okay. Detaching and let go is a practice of separating how I feel from who I am. And some of these statements that we practice help give us enough space to create a distance between the negative emotion and who we are. The third side of this is giving up self-judgment. Anytime we have an emotion that is in what we call the good and bad, right, which is a terrible label, but any emotion that leads to a negativity, we judge ourselves. We judge ourselves for being angry. We judge ourselves for being upset, frustrated, sad, mad, whatever the range is, fear, envy, hostility, self-pity, aggression, right? These lead us to judgments about ourselves. We get the emotions we think we deserve, but this is what they say, those aren't the emotions we want, right? Who wants to feel this way all the time? I don't want to live here. But we don't all use them. This is powerful. We don't all use emotions in the same way. What fear feels like to you might feel different to somebody else. What fear makes you dive for cover and hide might be the impetus that makes somebody step up with courage and try something hard. Every emotion is there to teach us or show us something which means it's valid in some way or another. But when we add judgment to the emotion, that's where we bring damage, right? The more I judge myself for the emotions I have, the more hurtful it feels. So they say, try compassion instead. You can look at yourself and say, it's all right, I understand. There's two things that you're doing when you do that. You take the judgment out of the emotion and you give yourself permission to be who you are. 
compassion is typically an emotion that is an outward, right? We direct it outwards. We feel compassion for other people who are hurting, other people who are struggling. Isn't it crazy? Vulnerability in other people looks like strength. Like, wow, I'm so impressed by what they've been through and what they overcame and who they are. Vulnerability in ourselves feels like garbage. <laughs> it feels humiliating and embarrassing and as awkward as any emotion can feel. But compassion, just as much as it can be directed outward, can be directed inward. We can grant compassion to ourselves. Nobody's meaner or harsher than we are to ourselves. Have you ever just laid out your self-talk? No, because it goes on inside of our head, right? But the things we will say to ourselves, we wouldn't tolerate anybody talking to people that we love that way. If somebody talked to my children the way I talked to me, I would be like the most aggressive mama bear that ever existed in the world, right? But we give ourselves permission to be mean and harsh and judgmental to ourselves. And if we take the judgment out and replace it with compassion, we are able to process our emotions in a different way. And here's the last step they give us. Rebuild your emotional body. As any of these emotions service, replace it with something new. Your body emotionally needs nourished just as much as your physical self does. Give language to your emotions. Learn how to navigate them. Every time you feel one of these negative emotions, your emotional body is expressing discomfort, soreness, fatigue, or pain. Pay attention. When you feel these symptoms, just as you would, listen to their example, if you had a rock in your shoe, you would feel it. You'd sit down, pull everything off, take the rock out so you wouldn't hesitate, right? It's uncomfortable. But emotionally, we've been carrying rocks around in our shoes that keep poking and jabbing at us and do nothing about it. The most important single thing in rebuilding your emotional body is becoming more whole. You are meant and created to live a whole existence. They said it helps you be more resilient. You can dispel the, demo the demons of the past, heal old wounds, expect the best and highest for yourself, be generous, see through your fears, learn self-acceptance. The self you defend, listen, every day as your unique point of view is a convenient fiction that makes the ego feel good. What the ego doesn't realize is that it would feel even better if it gave up its narrow, selfish stake in the world. When that happens, the true self can emerge. Then and only then is your wholeness possible. Exchange judgment, criticism, hypocriticalness with the real experience of compassion, love, and forgiveness. That's the healing that comes from being whole. The better we know ourselves, the better we use any of these practices to dive into self-awareness, the better we are able to understand who we are and who God created us to be. So I'm challenging all of us, do a moral inventory, a searching and fearless moral inventory. Take the plank out of your eye, put it down, look at it, examine it, stop hiding. No more pretending, no more secrets, no more pretense. We do not have to be, listen, we don't have to be afraid of what we find when we pull out the plank. God so wants us to live whole, healthy lives that Christ came into the world to stare into the darkest shadows that exist in humanity. Friends, he didn't shrink back on the road to the cross, not from any of us, not from any darkness he saw or experienced. He will not shrink from us today. His victory over life and death 
is our victory. It gives us the courage and the hope we need to face problems, struggles, and darkness, everything we've been avoiding our whole life, because we don't face them alone. Christ is with us. A victorious Christ is with us, standing with us, ready to guide us and help us. Open your heart, open your mind. He doesn't let us down. He who is in us is greater than any darkness we face, any shame, any guilt, any regret. Christ with us will always help us through. And the place he wants to meet us is the very place we've been hiding afraid from. Take it out. God isn't going to turn from you now. He's here to help us, guide us, heal us, and make us whole. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that you would please help us. I recognize how hard this is. I recognize the fear, the shame, the embarrassment, the things that we hide from in ourselves. I pray, Father, that you would help us to see ourselves more clearly, more how you see us. I pray that your goodness, your gentleness, your compassion would fill our hearts. I pray, Father, that we would do the work to be more aware, that we would come out of the shadows and live the life, the whole life that you've created us to live. Father, I pray that you would challenge our judgmental, critical spirit, and I pray that in your goodness and grace, we would live. And as we live there, we would learn how to express that grace and compassion outward towards others. Help us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.